Coming up this hour, we're going to hit some headlines. We're going to talk about comparison, abusive power, and leadership, and why some people just don't vote. You're listening to The Come Again. Hey everyone, welcome to the Common Good. And I think my voice just cracked. A little. Did you hear that? Brian? <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. You are, it's Friday. Welcome man. to the Common Good. Yeah, it's just one of those. Welcome to manhood. <laughs> if that's if that's any kind of indication of the kind of show we're going to have today, I am here for it. I'm just going to own that. Uh, take a as a good host, coffee. I was just going to let that go, but nah, you called nah, yourself nah, out. <laughs> nah, you need. To... <laughs> I would call you out. Nah, maybe I wouldn't. It depends on how how I'm feeling that particular day. This is probably a good time to remind people. That we are this week recording earlier in the day <laughs> yes, <laughs> and yes. not our normal, regularly scheduled 4 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. That is because of some scheduling stuff, mostly on my end. But uh wanted to be wanted to be full disclosure there because we know that uh, a lot could happen between the time that we're recording this and the time that you're hearing it. But we're going to begin the show with just some kind of rapid fire segments, just headlines that we probably don't have a whole lot more to say about. But right. uh, are, are, you know, the kinds of things worth at least highlighting and maybe if, you know, it gets traction online, maybe we'll revisit it next week. Uh, but before we just get down to business, other than having to endure my crackling voice this morning, how are you doing? <laughs> that made my, my morning better. Oh, <laughs> I, I am doing great today, man. Turn on, turn on the TV this morning and see it's going to be 75 degrees all weekend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yesterday... Uh, I I didn't even tell you this because you're like you're like in school and all you've got all this stuff going on. I took a little bit of time and went golfing yesterday for the first time, uh, kind of all uh, uh, all summer. I didn't play all summer, and now in November I got to play. So I'm I'm doing well. Got got a lot of sunlight How'd you yesterday. Do? How'd you do? I actually shot pretty well for me. For me, I I try to shoot in the low 90s, and I shot a 92. But more than that, it was just. Uh, I, I played with a buddy and we were just like, can you believe it's like November the 5th right now? And we're in short sleeves and short. So it was really, you know, there's so much craziness, not to get over dramatic, but with all the election stuff and all mm -hmm. this, and you just get so crazy in your head, watching all this stuff, be checking Twitter that there was something about walking around a golf course yesterday in the sunlight and just enjoying the weather and being like, oh, okay, no, no, life's good. Life is yeah. okay for me right now. And uh, and then come back and watch all the election results and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, uh, no, I'm doing well. And uh, you've had a crazy week, but hopefully uh, you've got some relaxing this weekend, maybe, or, or at least back to some normalcy. Yeah. Yeah. We got some we got some plans in the books. We got some uh, we're going to do a men's ministry thing and we have some uh, I'm preparing to teach. You know, we record on Mondays now, so it's always That's strange right. heading into a weekend because. You know, we, I get to kind of experience the weekend, but I'm knowing that I'm teaching the next morning. I'm also sort of, you know, prepping <laughs> and rehearsing morning, and all that. Wild, right. Yeah. It is pretty. Yeah, it's it's strange, but it's nice, too, though, because it's so close. Like you can remember very clearly like, oh, what we what we just talked about, because in my memory, you know, at the time of recording, it was just yesterday. Mm -hmm. But all right. So we got, we got a, a few headlines. I'm going to let you pick which one you want to start with. And uh, just a fair warning, this isn't how the rest of the show will look. But sometimes mm -hmm. for this first segment. We just kind of like to hit some headlines because we think they're worth knowing or worth talking about. Yeah, I think the biggest headline for the nation right now, and again, the caveat being that uh, you and I are, are recording in the morning, but just about a half hour before you and I came on, uh, it all ever since election night, Donald Trump has been leading in Pennsylvania, and now Joe Biden is leading. I mean, it's unbelievable, man. They both have almost 3.3 million votes, and they're separated by like 6,000 votes. I mean, that mm -hmm. is... Hmm. That is craziness. And and as you watch all these states right now, you're just 
every day reminded about how almost down the middle split we are as a right. country, especially in some of these states. Uh, and so hopefully that if Pennsylvania, that might tip it to where we start getting a call here and then we can worry about all the court cases that are going to happen and whatever else. But that kind of split actually also then plays into the article that I wanted to talk about first. And that's out of Christianity Today uh, from the other day. Uh, our friend Kate Shelnut wrote this. Uh, that John Piper's Liberty Convocation was pulled after his election post the other day. So uh, Liberty, their chapel, or they call it Convocation, uh, they had a video appearance, a dual appearance with John Piper and J.D. Greer talking about missions. So they weren't talking about politics. And then you might remember, you know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, John Piper uh, released that, what what I thought was a, a brilliantly written blog post as to basically why he's not voting for either people, but he really called Donald Trump to task yeah. in that. And uh, Liberty had already pre-recorded this video with Piper and they decided to pull it. Right. Uh, and, and when I first saw that, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And then I, I did have a little bit of sympathy for them going, man, they've been through the ringer with Falwell and all this stuff. They're probably trying to avoid any any uh yeah. any controversy whatsoever so i tried to give them in my head a little bit of grace but for me it highlighted again like our inability right now to go okay john piper could say this politically but we could still listen to him on missions <laughs> or yeah, on right. other stuff uh and so i actually understood it but for me it highlighted the danger again of not just our our hyper divided um country but the danger of a hyper divided church right now and mm. evangelicalism. And and so I think that's a that's a really because Piper and J.D. Greer are pretty accepted down the middle when it comes to things like missions and other right, things. Right. Uh, and so to see them pull it, I actually understood it because of all the all the flack they've gotten for Fallwell and stuff. But I found it to be sad and um, and, and a little bit uh, it's a, it, maybe not a red flag, a little bit of a yellow flag about where we're continuing to move here. Well, I appreciate that. I think that I think that's fair, you know, to to remember that Liberty is probably having to navigate waters that you and I, you know, have no real context for. Either I can't even imagine right. what they're going through. Either way, that's I know that we got some comments on the Facebook page about that. And again, a lot of it is speculatory, which is about all we have right now. But um, another story from Christian Post, and we try to do this every once in a while, just as a reminder. I don't know what category you'd put this in, but like the the crystallizing of like what global Christian persecution looks like or mm -hmm. uh, what even like global activism looks like, or sometimes, sometimes for me, at least it's helpful to kind of get out of my own context a yeah. little bit and realize, Oh, here's, here's what's going on around the world. So the headline reads North Korea, COVID victims starving to death in quarantine camps says Christian activists. Do you want to give us the, the flyover of this one? Yes. It's heartbreaking. It says that, you know, we, we know that North Korea has a really brutal regime and it says that citizens that are infected with COVID right now are reportedly being placed in quarantine camps where they're just being left to die, deprived of food, water, medicine, causing many to starve to death. And so, like you said, there's the, the, the lack of humanity here uh, is so troubling and sad. And I think you, you frame it well to go, uh, we sometimes just need to be reminded uh, that that there's a world out there in which people are suffering and where it, deeply inhumane things are happening, really troubling things, uh, and that we have our problems here, certainly, uh, around all sorts of things. But when you read stuff like this, uh, my mind almost can't get around it. Like, I have no right. framework for this, you know? Right. And so it's it's a reminder about what's going on around the world in some places. 
Yeah, another story that we uh, touched on briefly, I don't know if this was yesterday or the day before, regarding Carl Lentz. Uh, looks like he's now issued an official apology on Instagram, which even that sentence feels strange to me. It makes me feel old, yep. right? Like, I don't, did you have that thought? You're like, oh, it, his statement is now available on Instagram. Yeah, like, that's, that's a not, weird one. And then not a place for, that's not a place for uh, statements. Right, right. That was weird. And then also I'm from out in the East Coast. So I'll sometimes in the morning online, I'll read the New York papers uh, and like both of the New York papers, the New York Post and the New York uh, Daily News had huge articles about him. And I was like, man, like this is kind of a mainstream event, which adds to the, doesn't add to the sadness, but it, but it, it gives context to how big of a story this is. Yeah, no kidding. Did you want to briefly share the two that our uh, producer found? Uh, at least is one that he did. Uh, a man was banned from Yellowstone after trying to fry chicken in a hot spring. I mean, how, what a great idea. A man from Idaho uh, has been banned from Yellowstone for at least two years. They found him near Yellowstone's Shoshone Geyser Basin cooking pots with and two chickens in a burlap sack in a hot spring. That guy should not be uh, in trouble. That guy should be applauded, my man. <laughs> Can we get him on the show? If we could track him down, that would be a dream to have that guy just explain what was going through his mind. If you uh, were paying attention during the segment, you'll realize there was no real thread tying any of these stories together. It's just sort of like random headlines that uh, our team kind of collected to start off the show. But coming up next, an article out of Christianity Today from a couple of weeks ago, how churches elevate and protect abusive pastors. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, currently going through puberty. His name is Brian Brom. <laughs> welcome to The Common Good. Congratulations. Anyone who's, anyone who's just tuning in right now is like, did he mean to say that? Is Ian okay? Is that... I, I, I don't know if I'm just like extra tired or my whole voice feels raspy. Have we done a show yet or either of us was feeling like, like really, truly sick? Has that happened yet? I remember with you. And oh, I think gosh, it was, really? <laughs> well, you also had shows where you were just extremely tired after your kids were just born. But I remember, gosh, we're going on a year, I think, where you had one where you were drinking tea and you were just like, uh, you were playing injured on that day. <laughs> I do remember that. And then do you remember the random one where you were in like severe back pain? Oh, neck thing is a neck thing, right? And you like couldn't look up and it was that was hard. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if like I could hear that. I want to go back and find those shows. Like, do I sound injured to the average listener? Like this guy clearly is lying on the mat while trying to do the show because I literally we like moved the microphone off the off the table and I was like reclining in one of the office chairs trying desperately That's not to like right. s- like squeal in pain that was and then brutal. you got uh you got a uh uh who who came in and helped you it was dallas, dallas. Jenkins, it was dallas jenkins the chosen <laughs> <laughs> i actually texted him recently and i was looking at the last text i had from him was him sending me advice about how to take care of my neck <laughs> <laughs> i remember that oh, oh funny so days funny. So, yeah all right so this is not a joking matter. And this actually was written before any of the Carl Lentz stuff, too. So just to make it really clear, like this article was not written in response to any any breaking news, any headlines in the church world, um, as, as best I can tell. So the, the title intrigued me, though. How Churches Elevate and Protect Abusive Pastors. A psychologist explores the power dynamics that help turn shepherds into wolves, which as a premise in general... I find so interesting because I don't think a lot of people think about the ways that the 
the church structure itself can sometimes not only like protect, but elevate uh, mm-hmm. people who abuse power. I think we tend to think uh, it's just this one lone guy is usually a guy, right? Who's yep. manipulated everybody. No one has any idea. And then he's found out and then he's removed. And that it, right. I think it's actually, and you and I have probably alluded to this over the course of two years. It's not quite that cut and dry. Obviously the person doing the abusing is still 100% at fault, but right. there's some infrastructure stuff that's at play there. And I, I want to read a little bit from this article because I think it's really interesting. It starts mm-hmm. by saying the seduction of power, both individual and institutional is a tale as old as time within the church. The misuse and abuse of authority has taken a devastating toll in broken lives and congregations. Yet the true nature of power often goes unacknowledged and unexplored. In Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, psychologist Diane Langberg brings several decades of experience counseling clergy leaders and trauma survivors to this topic. Tim Hine, a pastor and lecturer in Australia and the author of Understanding Sexual Abuse, a guide for ministry leaders and survivors, spoke with Langberg about why pastors and ministry leaders sometimes feed on their flocks. That, like, phrase breaks my heart. Like, it's... Absolutely. And, you know, hopefully we've been consistent in this regard. Anytime there is a story to this end, you and I are both like, first off, this breaks our heart. Not just because mm-hmm. we're pastors, but, like, is it, you know, we've, we've given our life to this. And to know that this... To know that this happens so much, that there are people who are experts in this field of study, to me, is heartbreaking. I don't, I don't know how that hits you. It's heartbreaking. The same phrase that you pulled out of there I just jumped off the page to me, how they feed on their flocks. And one thing this show, doing this show has done is like, I feel like you and I, ever since literally the first segment we've done, there's mm-hmm. been this common thread of there being discussions going on about abusive pastors and about churches that cover up for their abusive pastors. And I feel like we keep having the conversation about how do churches even get to that point where they... uh uh, allow people allow you like you said vast majority of the time men in power to stay there uh even though everyone's going at the end like oh yeah we knew he was doing that or we right. saw that I, I i just am dumbfounded by it but the more we talk about it i suppose the more we begin to understand that like this is a thing people um organizations they 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 ele- not that's what makes this article hard it's not just that they uh, hide the sins and but literally that they continue to elevate these people for other reasons is just heartbreaking yeah that con that thing right there who sometimes feed on their flock. could that be any more opposite of the biblical call of a pastor right no now? kidding man yeah let me uh i'm going to tackle a couple of the questions that are raised in this interview and then get your feedback <laughs> so the first mm-hmm. question is uh, the word power is a contested one in our culture how do you define it And uh, the response is basically power is influence, the capacity to produce an effect. If I walk up to you and I'm bigger than you and I push you down, then I have done something that had an effect. And everybody has some sort of influence, even an infant. If you bring a baby home from the hospital and start screaming at 3 a.m., what do you do? You get up. And I would say (laughs) I know the feeling. Uh, (laughs) This is part of what it means to be God's image bearers. He has told us rule, rule over the earth. That's a power word. As sinners, of course. We've ruined this like we've ruined everything else, but exercising power is still a part of our essence, even if individuals and systems are prone to misusing it. What do you think of that definition? Uh, That definition of power, I think sometimes we can overcomplicate it, but uh, that that definition of power of of being uh, influence and, uh, you know, it could be physical, like they said there, you're bigger, you can bully someone, or it could be emotional, or it could be any kind of type of way, but uh, this idea of 
uh, I have power over you. I can make you do something that I want. I have that sort of influence over you for whatever reason, I think is, is a good one to keep in the back of our minds. Yeah, the next question they asked Lindbergh is, if all of us wield power and influence of some sort, then why are Christian leaders, in your view, especially susceptible to becoming power abusers? What do they fail to appreciate about the power they have? That is the million-dollar question. She says, mm. by and large, the schools uh, we have for educating Christian leaders do not teach about such things. Seminaries give practical knowledge about how to run a church or a ministry, but they aren't doing enough to illuminate the nature of power and the dynamics that cause issues of abuse to arise and then be covered up. Another problem mm. is that seminaries haven't always done enough to teach leaders the importance of understanding themselves and their own vulnerabilities, the hurts and wounds that might have never been named, let alone dealt with. I've worked with tons of pastors over the years, and many of these good men and women go into these positions having never asked these questions of themselves. Think, for instance, of a man in the pulpit whose father physically abused him and spoke to him like he was trash. He'll be full of wounds, and that's going to affect how he uses his position of leadership. But his ignorance of himself and the wounds he's carrying make him vulnerable to feeding off his sheep. I can't tell you how many pastors have sat in my office weeping, saying, I don't know how I got here after they've behaved abusively themselves. Does that surprise you at all, Brian, that she's lost count of how many pastors have literally been baffled by their own behavior and unaware of how they got there? I think it it would have used to have, uh, have surprised me, but uh, not as much anymore. I, th I think that, that people are drawn to being pastors and you and I know this all too well. People are drawn for a lot of different reasons. And one of them is, um, is very uh, godly. It's, you know what, I want to help people. I want to serve people. I want to shepherd people. I want to lead people to Jesus. But I do think uh, there's a lot around being a pastor, I think, that um, that feeds into uh, brokenness and even narcissism and other things that if you're getting into it for the wrong reasons, or you don't even know that's why you're getting into it, but it feeds into some sort of brokenness, abuse right. from your past, whatever else it might be, I do think it's a dangerous profession in that way. And I remember somebody once telling me as I was kind of getting into church work, they said, uh, man, there's a lot of people in this for really good reasons, but there's a lot of people in it for really unhealthy reasons who shouldn't be. And, and that has played itself out. So I wish I could say that her saying that surprises me, but I'm not sure that it does. Yeah, and I think to me, at least the aspect that really jumps out is how important it is for us to know ourselves, regardless of the positions that we hold. It's why I'm such an advocate for therapy and counseling, because a lot of times people say like, oh, I don't need therapy. I haven't experienced some massive trauma. And that might be true. But the work of therapy is, is way more than just simply like, how do I heal from you know, the loss of a loved one or something massive? Sometimes it's just how do I unravel the ball of yarn that is myself and my psyche and my experiences and all the things that you're bringing to every conversation. And if you're a pastor, every sermon or parent or marriage or whatever. And I think um, that's part of what I find so haunting is that it's not just like, oh, this guy was an egomaniac from the beginning. Like, I don't think that's always the case. I think sometimes there's just wounds mm -hmm. that they haven't, you know, Richard Rohr says pain that's not transformed is transmitted. So if it's not like dealt with, it's eventually going to come out somewhere else. And it's typically in like surprising and unhelpful ways. Either way, Absolutely. we know this is kind of a controversial topic, but certainly one that's relevant right now that's on our facebook page we would love to know what you guys think what are what does the article miss maybe what would you add what do you agree with i think uh we would love to hear from you guys there coming up next an address given well this is decades ago 1956 entitled why i won't vote 
That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you were here today. It's the home stretch, sort of. We're in Friday. We're in Friday. We're on Friday. We're at Friday. How would you say that? Why can't I? We're, we've arrived at Friday. That's a good one. We're enjoying Friday. <laughs> We're well, in the I, midst of a Friday. I'm in the basement. <laughs> You're probably enjoying it more than I am. But either way, it's Friday. And uh, as Rebecca Black would say, got to get down on Friday. Is that who sang that? I'm all oh, over the place, man. That crazy remember- song that went viral. Yes, I remember that. I remember watching an interview with her years later talking about it's legitimately tough to like, be a viral sensation for being awful when you're like a, a young teenager. And I was like, oh, that must have been brutal. Yeah, I can't even. Either way, that's that's not at all what we're talking about. Obviously, this has been like the week for political commentary. Everyone's tweeting and posting and commenting and weighing in. And uh, I saw someone retweet someone else who had retweeted someone else. I didn't all that to say I didn't know the person that originally had posted this, but her comment was something like. Everyone seems pretty ignorant for the reasons why someone might not vote. They were, they were kind of pushing against some of the rhetoric, you know, and Karen Swallow prior talked about some of this, you know, she wrote that article about why she's either voting third party or not voting or, you know, and that's a pretty contested position. A lot of people can feel very mm-hmm. anxious about someone holding that kind of position. How dare you? And whatever. We know that's controversial. So I wanted to, I wanted to actually address this after the election. So, you know, so maybe it wouldn't feel as controversial, but it is uh, it's an address from 1956 entitled Why I Won't Vote. And we won't have time to read all of it, but I was wondering, Brian, if you could read some of it. Yeah. So it's by W.E.B. Dubois. And again, it's wild that it's from 1956 and how much of it's still the same. So I'll, I'll skip over the beginning where he talks about uh, why he doesn't vote for either. He said he always votes third party because neither especially for him as an African-American, were dealing with the issues that he thought were most important. So then he goes on to say, in 1956, when he writes this, I shall not go to the polls. I have not registered. I believe that democracy has so far disappeared in the United States that no, quote, two evils exist. There is but one evil party with two names, and it will be elected despite all I can do or say. There is no third party. On the presidential ballot in a few states, 17 of them in 1952, a socialist party will appear. Few will hear its appeal because it will have no opportunity to take part in the campaign and explain its platform. If a voter organizes or advocates a real third party, he may be accused of seeking to overthrow this government by force and violence. Anything he advocates by way of significant reform will be called communist and will of necessity be communist in the sense that it must advocate such things as government ownership or means of production. These things are on every communist program. Uh, He goes on to say later, the present administration is carrying on the greatest preparation for war in the history. So he's going to talk about how for him, arms proliferation, he says this earlier, is a big deal for him. Uh, Gambling at home, church and on the stock market is increasing and all prices are rising. Uh, It costs three times his salary to elect a senator and many millions to elect a president. So money in the political system. Mm -hmm. Uh, The, quote, other party has surrendered all party differences in foreign affairs and foreign affairs are more important affairs today and must and take most of our taxes. Uh, So he talks about how does Stevenson differ from Eisenhower? So wild just to read that. Right. Like how long ago this was. Uh, But this is the democracy that we peddle abroad. 
he talks about the black vote and where will they cast them and being held back. He says, I have no advice for others in this election. Are you voting Democrat? Well and good. All I ask is why? Are you voting for Eisenhower and his smooth team of bright ghostwriters? Again, why? <laughs> will your vote either way support or restore democracy to America? Is the refusal to vote, this is where he gets at it, uh, in this election, a council of despair? No, it is dogged hope. It is hope that if 25 million American, uh, uh, 25 million voters refrained from voting in 1956 because of their own accord, uh, and not because of a sly wink from Khrushchev, this might make American people ask how much longer this dumb farce can proceed without even a whimper hmm. of protest. And so he goes on to explain more and more as to why he's doing this. But uh, he basically says W.E.B. Dubois here way back in 1956, he's saying, listen, I think that they're both crooked. I think that they're both corrupt. I don't see much integrity and value or what more importantly what he thinks is important he didn't find satisfactory answers in the republican or the democratic candidate uh, and so he's going to vote third party and not vote and i think this is something we've been talking about for weeks like do you vote on the integrity of uh here let's put it this way do one of the two main candidates have to earn your trust or earn your vote i should say uh or is it okay to say you know what i don't i don't want to vote for either of them when you see a state like Pennsylvania right now that is split by 6,000 votes out of 7 million votes, when it's that close, is it, uh, is it irresponsible to vote for somebody that you know can't win? And to see these, uh, go, these debates going back to 1956 right. and before that over different reasons, I do think is fascinating and something I, I think is a great debate for those of us. Uh, who just are Americans to have, but also those of us who are Christ followers to have to wrestle with. Yeah, I want to see how you feel about his last paragraph here. He says, is the answer the election of 1956? We can make a sick man president and set him to a job which would strain a man in robust health. So he dies. And what do we get to lead? Who do we get to lead us? With Stevenson and Nixon, Eisenhower and Eastland, we remain in the same mess. I will be no party to it. And that will make little difference. You'll take large part and bravely march to the polls, and that also will make no difference. Stop running Russia and giving Chinese advice when we cannot rule ourselves decently. Stop yelling about a democracy we do not have. Democracy is dead in the United States, yet there is still nothing to replace real democracy. Drop the chains, then, that bind our brains. Drive the money changers from the seats of the cabinet and the halls of Congress. Call back some faint spirit of Jefferson and Lincoln and when again we can hold a fair election on real issues, let's vote, and not till then. Is this impossible? Then democracy in America is mm. impossible. What, what do you think of that? It's hard to read, but but it's, yeah. in our day, it's you can still see where that's coming from. Uh, what are the special interest groups? How much money is put in towards election? What what actually matters to get somebody elected? I think is a valuable conversation. I've told you, for instance, we started this show. Uh, I'm an optimist. I try to try yeah. to take an optimistic view. So when I read things like, uh, you know, democracy, it, we don't have it or it's dead. I'm like, ah, you know, no, it's still there and this and that. But it's hard to argue, quite frankly, with what he's saying, with the amount of money that's in our elections, the way things are are so figured out. Um, yeah, it's hard. I, I still want to believe in it. <laughs> I still want to have hope. Yeah. Uh, but but it's hard to just be like, nah, he's totally wrong because it's uh we see it around us. We see it in the election that we're getting argued about right now. I, I keep thinking of the uh, the line from Dr. Cornell West. I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. Like I've just mm -hmm. been really grappling with that these last few months. Like, what does that 
actually look like. And I don't know, for some reason I found I found it to be fascinating the kinds of things he was writing about in 1956. I'm not quite sure what my goal or aim there was. There certainly was a sense of like, oh, we've been having a lot of these same disagreements and arguments and frustrations for mm-hmm. for a long time. At the very least, for me at least, that was like that was perspective granting. And uh either way, you know plenty of people will agree others will disagree that's up at our facebook page we would love to know what you think this this it doesn't really connect to anything that's happening specifically right now but it's something that you and i have tackled especially when we talk about how digital everyone's reality is right now it's called the cult of comparison that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. Happy Friday. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Welcome back or to the show, depending on uh, where you are in the timeline here. Do you want to guess what holidays are today, by the way? Mm. Oh. You're going to guess S'mores Day, obviously, right? Say that again? You're going to obviously guess S'mores Day, Uh, right? This doesn't doesn't feel like S'mores Day to me. It'd be amazing Today, I believe, is... I believe it's uh, National Dog Groomer Appreciation Day, if I heard correctly. I think I got a card for that one. So, wow, so, that is groomer. that was funny, Brian. That was a good. <laughs> here's here's a day that I feel like you should care about a little bit because of where you're from. It's National Jersey Friday. Oh, very nice. Okay, I knew it was a good day. Do people from New Jersey really like jerseys? Is that a is that a thing? Like like a jersey, like you wear like a like a team jersey. I'm sure, a, I'm sure. assuming yeah. it's also saxophone day. And finally, the day has arrived. National Nachos Day. So hopefully you're. Uh... Oh, score. <laughs> Did you? I feel like I don't think we t- I know that you've played the drums throughout your life, but I feel like there was a time where Ian Simpkins probably tried out the saxophone. That feels Absolutely like your kind not. of instrument. Absolutely. No. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> My kind of instrument. I meant that in a good way, kind of jazzy, you know, playing. I, I can see it. I can see you playing the saxophone. We have had uh, the one and only Scott Olson from the One Collective um, on the show a couple of times. He is a phenomenal jazz saxophone player. Mm. So that's like my that's where my brain goes. So when you think when you say that feels like your kind of instrument, I'm like, well, I want to be more like Scott Olson. So, yeah, n- never did. Absolutely not. I tried the trumpet for like a semester and uh, I liked the loudness of the drums way more. <laughs> so I I, and one. I, I do struggle with, <laughs> I, there was a season where we would, I would watch the Simpsons, but it's, I can't believe Simpsons are still on, but it's so long. But anytime anyone says the word saxophone, all I hear is Homer in my head going saxophone. Yeah, that's, that's probably true for at least half of our audience. No, no I need, it's so true. no need to compare Brian. Speaking of comparison, <laughs> the cult of comparison there's an article here out of Relevant from uh, this is a little bit ago, a couple of weeks ago that I thought I thought was a pretty interesting take and something that I don't know felt timely to me. So why don't why don't yeah. you get us into it a little? Yeah, it's written by Lisa Bevere, and she starts by talking about how she woke up one morning and was having just a great day, and she said, "I should have thanked God for even the stillness of just the morning I could enjoy." But then she said she got on Twitter and her friends were all kind of retweeting a list, and it was not just any list; it was a list of the top 100 female ministers in America. So uh, she said, ridiculous questions and comparisons flew through my mind. I read the postscript that trailed the list. Apparently, the author admitted there might be room for oversight and some women who should have been added didn't make the list. She provided room for additions. I scrolled down. Would it be wrong to add my own name? (laughs) Was I serious? (laughs) Of course it would be. Maybe I could have my assistant add my name. 
Realizing I was teetering ridiculously close to the brink of junior high insanity, I went looking for my husband. Uh, a fluffy whirlwind of pajamas, I stormed into his office ba- uh, bewailing, John, I'm not on the list. <laughs> my Bible-reading babe was confused. With his arms flailing about, I shared who was on the list and my obvious frustration not being on it. When my rant was over, he calmly suggested a few Bible passages for me to review. <laughs> this was not the response I was looking for. I wanted him to say, Lisa, I'm so sorry. I agree it was an awful mistake. Bring me my phone. I will add you to the list. Mm. But he didn't. No sympathy was going to be found in the company of my husband. I stormed out of my office yelling, I don't need to read those Bible verses. Now I was mad at the concept of the list. And frustrated with the author, I put down my phone, closed my eyes, took a deep breath, and let it go. As I exhaled, I heard the Holy Spirit gently ask Lisa, would you be this upset about the list if you were on it? Mm. Truth time, I would not have. I would have used my social media platform as a way of pointing others to the list. Busted. I'm the wife of one, the mother of four, and and a grandmother. And yet when I disconnect from my true identity, I can still struggle with the cruelty of comparison. When we look to others for our affirmation, we will always feel as though we are on the outside looking in. To be quite honest, there is no single person who can completely fill the void of affirmation in your life. Sorry, even if your husband is perfect, it's not going to happen. There is no lifetime achievement list or award that can ever write with assurance the words that God alone can scribe on your heart. Loved, beautiful, valued, intimately known, and mine. No matter what it looks like from the outside, God understands what causes the quaking of a woman's heart in this case. And God knows how to calm the frenzy of a woman in pajamas uh, who forget to still their souls before comparison comes to steal their heart. Let me pause there before we end out the article. Uh, Guilty, man. We all have comparison issues with certain things, but I feel this one, whether it be, uh, you know, how many reviews do we have on our on our podcast to how big's my church compared to that guy to uh-huh. what are people saying about the sermon I preach? I've preached more sermons about your identity in Christ and not getting your self-esteem from other people and blah, blah, blah. I really do struggle with this one. Well, that's actually why I uh, selected this article, Brian, because I don't struggle <laughs> with it, it at all. You knew it was my thing. <laughs> yeah, I, this is, uh, I pretty much conquered this, but I was, I was including it on your behalf. No, I, I do think... I I find that the people that I most gravitate towards in like a mentorship relationship or someone you might consider like a wise sage or a guru, whatever your word, this tends to be a constant. Like they seem to have, again, they're probably not immune to it, but for some reason, the common thread in the relationships that I, I intrinsically seem like magnetically pulled towards and wanting to like learn from are people who have really gotten this under wraps. I've noticed that over the last few years for some reason. And, you know, I was encouraged in my 20s to find different kinds of mentors. Like, yeah, it's okay to have like a spiritual mentor that's not your financial mentor and vice versa. That's, you know, that's okay. Um, so, I you know, I have specific mentors for very specific categories of life sometimes. But there does seem to be this common thread of like, wow, you, there's a, I don't want to say centered because that might, that might trip people up. But there is, there's like a, there's like a centeredness. There's a, yeah, there that guy does have a bigger church or makes more money nope. or has more followers or whatever. Um they've somehow like I think the article goes on to reference the uh the now pretty famous Theodore Reza, Re, uh, oh boy. Theodore Relevant. Yeah, that would be <laughs> Theodore Relevant in Roosevelt magazine. <laughs> I think that's what's going on. There's an ad at the top and I read Theodore and then I read Relevant. Oh boy, it is Friday. Anyway, you know the you know the quote, comparison is the thief of joy. Yes. 
I think that's really pointed and really timely, maybe now more than ever, because it's so the comparison game has never been easier because so much is happening digitally. You know, like it felt like before you didn't necessarily know everyone's square footage of their house. People weren't bragging about their salary amounts, but, you know, definitely with social media and views and likes and shares, all that's right there in your face. Like the temptation to compare is like ever present. It's always right in front of us, you know? Yeah, and just being reminded every now and then of like what I have really good in my life. Like, man, I got a a great family and a church that I love, and this, you know. And, and instead of always uh, longing for what that guy's got, or right. uh, man, man, look at all, look at the influence, look at all the people retweeting what they're talking about, right. look at the size of that, and and that is just a. Uh, that that game never ends well, right? Because you could think of it like, oh, it's just motivating for it. No, it's not. It makes you look in the mirror and go, what's wrong with me? <laughs> Why am I not X or Y? And it's just Theodore Roosevelt's right there. It's it's the thief of joy. And uh, she she ends her article by saying, let's not be satisfied with human lists and comparisons. When we notice the pangs of inadequacy that rivalry inflicts, let's hit our knees and ask for a revelation of the one who is without rival. Uh, just such a good word, pointing us back to things that I think we know, uh, but we need to be reminded, I at least, I should say I, I need to be reminded of on a regular basis. Yeah, likewise. And and real briefly, again, this is posted up on our Facebook page, but the two passages she recommends are Second Corinthians 10, 12 and John 5, 44. I won't read them here, but Second Corinthians 10, 12 and John 5, 44. Highly recommend uh, go and read those for yourself and do more than just read them, like sit in them. You know, meditate on them. Let them let them kind of speak to you a little bit. Cause I think uh, I think it's really really important. And with that, Brian, the first hour is in the books. Coming up in the second hour, Mandy Smith, who's been on the show a number of times, is going to join us. Love Mandy in her heart. I'm super excited for that interview. We're also going to talk a little bit more about the division that we're currently seeing in America. That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you like. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. It is so good to have you here today. Brian, we're at the halfway point. You still feeling good? I am still feeling good today. It's The, the sun is shining and uh, it's Friday. <laughs> that was I'm the least convincing. That was the le- You said it like a robot. I am, oh, sorry. <laughs> I am still no, feeling I, good today. <laughs> All systems positive. Guilty. Guilty. Let's try to get three, two, one. I'm feeling awesome still. No, I'm I'm excited for today. It's a it's a good day. The sun is shining, so uh, we may not have a president elect or president or whatever at the moment, but you know, life is good. Okay, so I found this article that I want to talk about, and it's uh, we're going to talk drugs. You want to talk some drugs? <laughs> Why not? Happy Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Seems appropriate. Uh, this election, a divided America stands united on one topic, and uh, I guess I kind of spoiled it. That is the topic. Before we get into that real briefly, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. You can weigh in and comment there. You can send us a private message if you have thoughts about previous shows or future shows. We really would love to hear from you there. Twitter and Instagram, at Common Good Talk. You can send us messages there as well if you'd like, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And wherever it is you get your podcast, what better weekend activity could you think of? Then subscribing, rating, reviewing, and if you want to take it even a step further, you can share it with a friend or post it online. Any of that traffic helps us out a whole bunch, 
And uh, we're super grateful for all of you who have already done that. Also, do not miss the interview that we have coming up next with Mandy Smith. She's got a new book called Unfettered, Imagining a Childlike Faith Beyond the Baggage of Western Culture. That is available for pre-order right now. I cannot just go and do it right now. You don't even need to hear the interview. Just the book. The book is going to be phenomenal. Mandy's phenomenal. Highly recommend you go check that out. But for now, I want to talk about a divided America, which that seems obvious, right? Like we've we've seen we've seen examples of that all over the place. Like, would it? Mm-hmm. Do you think anyone would make a case right now, Brian, that we're not a divided America? No, I think the only debate is how divided are we? Because <laughs> uh, right. are we like civil war divided, or are we, you know, reconcilable divided? I I think that that's the only debate to 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 suggest that there's any meaningful unity in our country. I think would be foolish right now. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think that's probably. Uh, it's weird to say this. I feel like that's a topic we're still going to be talking about come next week too, right? No like doubt. not. Not just in terms of, you know, election outcomes and all the stuff that's going to what were you sharing with me during the break too? what was like one of the longest stretches before we actually knew who officially had won? Yeah, I believe it was Bush Gore 2000. I think I read today that it was December the 20th. And so I'm like watching stuff right now on CNN going, can we please end this election, you know, today or tomorrow? But to think lawsuits and recounts and all this stuff just you know buckle down and 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 it does worry you when when we just said that our country is so uh divided and if we have this prolonged argument more or less and let's be honest people on the trump side really kind of fanning the flames of like aggressiveness right now uh and that Mm -hmm. will get met from the other side as well i do have some worries about how this can go you're just kind of hoping we get some clarity soon Yeah, no kidding. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about this article from uh, New York Times. Here's how it begins. It says it can take a while to determine the victor in a presidential election, but one winner was abundantly clear on Election Day. Drugs, once thought to be the scourge of a healthy society, are getting public recognition as a part of American life. Where drugs were on the ballot on Tuesday, they won handedly. What's going on in this article? Yeah, my home state of New Jersey, I believe, uh, legalized marijuana, as did South Dakota, Montana, and Arizona, joined 11 other states that had already legalized recreational marijuana. Mississippi and South Dakota made medical marijuana legal. That brought it to 35 different states. Uh, The citizens of Washington, D.C. voted to decriminalize psilocybin, an organic compound in mushrooms, Uh, Oregon, approved two drug-related initiatives. And so the point being uh, that election night, it says here, represented a significant victory uh, for three different forces pushing for drug reform. Uh, And and so uh, it calls into question what this article is essentially wanted to do is go like, all right, we see this movement culturally across our nation that basically every time uh, marijuana is on the ballot or other things that it seems to be going away from criminalization of it. And, you know, if you grew up when you and I did, uh, you know, we had dare in our, in our, um, in, in our schools and the war on drugs. Uh, and so your, your immediate thing is like, Oh my gosh, this is uneasy. But, uh, but the conversation going on here is very interesting. <laughs> also interesting that John Boehner, uh, the former speaker of the house, uh, leads a decriminalizing of cannabis lobby. Uh, but it's uh, we find that out in this article as well. But I think it's a fascinating conversation that while it's on the ballot, there seems to be this movement away from decriminalization 
Uh, and so where does that go to? Where does that lead to? Is it full decriminalization? Is there certain drugs that are and certain aren't? I think this is a huge conversation that's in the process, but also even more so on the horizon for our country to have to kind of wrestle with a little bit. Well, and I think part of the reason it's popular in this article makes the same assertion is that uh, Americans tend to believe that too many people are in jail because of uh, some kind of possession. And I'm I'm curious if you if you think this has implications for the church. Like, I feel like even I don't know. I don't know if you got these types of questions, but when when decriminalizing marijuana was like a really hot button issue, I feel like I got a lot of private emails from people like, Hey, as a pastor, how do you feel about that? You know, there was sort of this <laughs> like generally hey, help help me uh help me navigate this a little bit. Like, do you think this yep. this has uh implications for the country and the church? I think one of the implications for the church is going to be uh that around cultural issues, I sense there to be a pretty big generational divide, right? Like uh yeah. even if you take uh in the church specifically say my parents' generation and my generation, the views towards alcohol, uh, very different, right? right and right. so uh, I think that there tend to be generational divides around cultural issues within the church where there is not some blatant, you know, biblical teaching of theology on, uh, you know, uh, on this. And I suspect that this issue is going to uh, fall under that category. I think um, what, what say my kids generation I assume thinks about uh, legalizing marijuana and criminalization and other things versus say, you know, my generation, but more than that, my parents' generation, I think is going to uh, increase that divide. I think that is where we're going to see a break uh, even more than uh, liberal conservative church or whatever else. You'll have your outliers where it's like, you know, you can't go to Obviously. movies, can't drink alcohol. Can't, and this is going right. to fall in that line. And it's going to be everything symbolically wrong with our nation. But I do think this is going to highlight a generational divide. Yeah. And again, it is worth doing some research, I think, on the history of the war on drugs in general. I think you'll be mm -hmm. surprised to know where some of that came from. I, I know certainly in the last you know few years or so, my eyes have been open to some, some of the complications even there. I know that I don't we don't talk about drugs on the show very often. This is probably <laughs> a hot button issue, controversial issue. As always, that article is up on the Facebook page and we would love to know what you think. Coming up next, though, pastor and author Mandy Smith is going to join us for two segments. She's the author of a brand new book available for pre-order right now called Unfettered, Imagining a Childlike Faith Beyond the Baggage of Western Culture. You're not going to want to miss that. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we are absolutely thrilled to have back to the show the one and only Mandy Smith. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. That's it's so good to be here. And I hate to tell you, but since my name is Smith, I'm probably not the one and only Mandy Smith. <laughs> that's a good, that's In a fact, good point. there's a lady called Mandy Smith who writes kind of trashy romance novels and her books often get linked with mine on Amazon. No. So there's various oh. Mandy Smiths. I think I it's probably a bummer for her more than me because having a pastor <laughs> as your bio is probably a killer <laughs> to the whole the whole romance novel thing. Yes. I can't believe this has never come up before. I'm going to have to ask you this maybe later in the show because that is that is remarkable. I do want to mention, though, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, uh, you're the author of a brand new book available on pre-order right now called Unfettered, Imagining a Childlike Faith Beyond the Baggage of Western Culture, which just looks phenomenal. But before we get into that, would you just take a moment and 
introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, of course. Well, uh, as you may hear, I'm originally from Australia, but I've been living in the US for quite some time now. I'm a pastor and writer and speaker and um, yeah, trying to navigate what it means to be faithful uh, at this time when everything in the world and in the church seems to be in upheaval, seems to be a full-time job at the moment as well. Yeah, <laughs> right. Mandy, uh, this book, as Ian said, not only does it look great, but it looks so timely right now. And uh, in the bio of the book, in kind of the description, you say Western culture is in a tailspin and our Christian faith is entangled in it. I, I want to start kind of on the negative side. What exactly do you mean when you describe Western culture in a tailspin? Yeah, well, I think we're learning uh, a lot about power structures that have been abusive and political realities and ways that some people have been left out of some of those dynamics. We're learning about just so much of how we do politics and economy and um, education and also church that uh, actually sidelines not only certain people, but parts of our own selves. So it highlights uh, intellectual capacity and sidelines mm. our embodied experience, our emotions, mm. our instincts. Um, it, it makes us very individualistic and sidelines communal experience. And um, so it, it does damage within the human being as well as between human beings. And something about that doesn't ring true to what Christian faith is. And so sadly, a lot of people, because the Western church is so enmeshed with Western culture, are actually holding Christianity to its own claims and saying, this does not ring true. And sadly, just kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, walking away from from Christianity. But um, I think it's important for us to go back to, well, what's the difference here between Western Christianity and what's truly Christianity and and return to what we truly are supposed to be. See, I think that's such a, a timely word. We're actually in a series right now at our church on the Sermon on the Mount and talking about what does it mean to to be kingdom people, to walk in kingdom ways. And I, I'm finding that a lot of people, that's a very like nebulous idea. Like, sh well, sure, we expect the pastor to use phrases like that, but that doesn't actually impact the way I run my business or the way that I treat my spouse or my kids. Could Could you unpack a little bit? What do you mean by like being kingdom people are doing kingdom things in a kingdom way. What, what does that mean? Right. Yeah. And this is language that Walter Brueggemann uses about kingdom versus empire. And um, I do think that a lot of what Western Christianity has become is about more about empire. And, you know, Jesus said we are like the kingdom is like yeast in the dough, but I think we'd rather be a bread factory, <laughs> you know, mm. that like we want measurable things. We want, um, things seem legitimate if they have a website and if they have a, um, a, a logo and and the kingdom just moves in, in a more mysterious way than that. And uh, that doesn't seem, because it's harder to pinpoint, it feels much more vague to us. But right. one way that I've, um, that's helped me think about it is um, the story that we saw a few years ago with the BP oil spill in the Gulf where the oil just kept gushing for months and it was in the headlines. And we were just wondering like, what are we going to do to shut this thing off and clean this thing up? And a few months after we had tried to figure it out, um, there was a thing in the science pages that was talking about this, this naturally occurring bacteria that lives in the Gulf already and, and just gobbled up thousands of gallons of that oil. 
um, that we, you know, actually the things that human beings had done to try to deal with the problem actually got in the way of the natural work of that of that uh, microbe or that bacteria. Mm-hmm. So um, that is not just a metaphor. There are ways that the kingdom is actually literally doing those things, but it's through relationship and it's through conversation and it's through art and it's through family. And, and those things are just harder to measure. So it's not, I think we sometimes think if something is, is if there's a metaphor for it, that means it's less real, but it's mm. just that it um, gives us language for things that are just as real, but harder to, to, measure and i think part of our western culture is we really only value things that we can predict and measure but the kingdom really can't be predicted or measured but it's still just or even more powerful than the things we can predict and measure yeah mandy you you touched on this already but i I would love for you to be even talk more about what are some of these old habits that you're talking about uh, that are affecting and hurting you say our faith and the church right now yeah, well, one thing that really frustrates me when I see it in myself and in other people is that we have so many conversations happening at the moment among Christian leaders and in churches and Christian conferences and books that are really good questions um, asking, you know, why is the church falling apart right now? Why are our congregations crumbling and our Bible colleges closing and our denominations dividing? And then I think even the way that we are having those conversations is actually in my mind often perpetuating the problem because we still want to sit and think and talk about it. And Mm. um, if we really believed that the kingdom was powerful and that the spirit of God was in each one of us, then I think we would have a very different approach. And so this is why my book is, um, it was very tricky to figure out how to write a book that's actually saying, stop talking and thinking about everything all the time, because by its very nature, a book is encouraging you to think about things. Um, right. Not that there's anything wrong with thinking about things, but I think we've, we've just got the balance wrong. And um, mm. so what if the spirit of God is already at work, making all things new and calling us to partner with that spirit rather than believing that it's all up to us to fix the problem in our own strength. And so I often see, you know, Christians are supposed to be the ones who have a sense of hope and victory. And oftentimes at the moment, we're the ones who are most in crisis and in anxiety and depression and doubt, because we still, as Westerners, think it's up to us to fix it. And so, so oftentimes when I, when I describe this problem to people, um, and I say, you know, the, the problem that, Western cultures in a tailspin and that Christian faith is, is going down with it. They're like, Oh, you're right. Um, what can we do to fix it? You know? And, and I'm like, that's a part of the problem. <laughs> so ironically, and I, I'm, I do it myself, you know, I, mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with it because I, I also can do the same. And so um, strangely, the invitation to this came through um, an invitation into childlikeness, which Jesus says is the way to the kingdom. And we're like, mm, that seems kind of dumb and lame and um, I don't have time to finger paint, so there must be some other way into the kingdom. Um, but I think he is inviting us not, I mean, finger painting's great. We can do that as a way to enter the kingdom. I think it pro- probably couldn't hurt, but but I think it's so much bigger than that. It's um, when we were children, we didn't expect that everything was on our shoulders And when we were children, we knew how to partner with things bigger than ourselves. Hmm. And um, so there's there's an invitation into the kingdom in that childlikeness. And the beautiful thing is we've done this before. 
when we were kids, we didn't think it was all up to us to fix everything. And when we were kids, we didn't think our brain was the only thing that was real about us. And Mm. we listened to our bodily instincts and our emotions and our whole selves. We were whole beings. Mm. And so a part of uh, recovery from our Western ways will be um, taking a break from our Western habits of fixing and controlling everything in our own strength and taking a break from our Western habits of of believing and living as if our our intellectual capacity is is our a hundred percent of who we are. That's so good. Our guest today is Mandy Smith, not the romance novelist, by the way, but the pastor <laughs> and author and uh, author of the new book available for pre order now, Unfettered: Imagining a Childlike Faith Beyond the Baggage of Western Culture. And Mandy, I, I have two little ones at home, so I feel like I'm sort of relearning this phrase childlike, childlike faith, childlike wonder. And I'm realizing that in a lot of the circles, a lot of Christian circles in particular, I feel like that phrase gets tossed around without a whole lot of thought. Typically it sort of mm-hmm. stops at like, oh, you should be curious like a child, which I I feel like is is part of it. But some of what you were mentioning in the last segment to me is so much more robust than the ways I've often heard people talk about childlike faith. Can you speak a little bit more about why you think that's such a significant part of what you're sort of proposing in this book? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I was actually surprised since Jesus says this is the way to the kingdom. I thought there'd be all kinds of theology out there about it. And I could only find one serious book on the subject in the Western tradition of theology, which is by um, von Balthasar. So mm-hmm. um, and it's a great little book. Um, yeah, it started for me when I went on a sabbatical about five years ago. And I just said to the Lord, what am I supposed to do with eight weeks? And Mm. I felt an invitation to be like a child. And so I promised myself at the very beginning, if there was any little urge or prompt in me that I had to say yes to it, as long as it wasn't harmful or dangerous or illegal. And so um, those little instincts that I think happen to us, even as adults all the time, where you're walking past a tree that's covered in moss and you just want to touch it. And you just, we don't as adults, because we think that's silly or, Mm. um, or there's no time. And so for eight weeks, I just listened to those little instincts and it had me doing things like one time I spent 45 minutes saving worms that were all over the driveway for, from the rain that they'd all come up, you know, and it wasn't until <laughs> 45 minutes in that I looked up and realized the neighbors had been wondering what I was doing. Um, so, uh, you know, that was wonderful. And it meant that for eight weeks, if I, ne- if I needed to sleep, I slept. And if I needed to cry, I cried. And if I needed to dance, I danced and I wore whatever I felt like and I ate my favorite foods. And that was great. And um, and I really, any way that there was a mountaintop moment or a sense of God's presence, it, it came to me through all of those experiences. But when I went back to work as a pastor, what was interesting to me was that I'd awoken something, something in myself that I just couldn't shut up anymore. And I could no mm. longer tell the difference between my childlike instincts and the spirit in me. And so suddenly it became pretty serious. And the interesting thing, and this is where it kind of became a collision with Western culture, was that some of the things that the Spirit calls us into have no regards for our desire to um, protect ourselves from other people's ideas of us and our concerns about self-preservation and um, mm. and having good good uh, opinions from other people. And so suddenly when I went back to work, it was things like give away this thing that you would rather keep or speak to this person who actually 
makes you feel rather uncomfortable or um, mm. pray for healing for this person who is really hard to imagine might ever be healed and invite the whole community to do it, even though you're afraid that she might be disappointed and that God might look bad and that the community might wonder what on earth you're talking about because it's not part of our tradition. And um, mm. so it was only through saying yes to this, these prompts of the spirit that I really had to press into some really hard stuff. And uh, I came to have, I had to find language for, you know, we have the distinction between childlike and childish, but we don't have mm -hmm. similar language for adult-like and adultish. And right. I think adult-like is good because it, it's where we come, where we bring our agency. We, we start with a childlike faith and then we have to bring our adult-like agency and perseverance um, to, to partner with that. But, but I had to set aside what I've come to call adultishness, which mm. was the the efforts to be in control, to to look good, to understand everything, and um, and so it was. It really has reshaped my whole way of of living my faith and doing my ministry. That's fascinating. I, I was reading somewhere recently. They were talking about how scandalous it would have been when Jesus says things like, "Unless you become like these children, you're not going to get it. You're not going to enter." and how different people often perceive children in the ancient world than, you know, compared to now. And he's saying they were, they were low status. They were low on the rung. And he's like, you, you all keep trying to ask if you could, you know, sit at my right and left. You keep trying yeah. to, you know, climb these corporate ladders, unless you become like these citizens who in that culture didn't hold any power, didn't wield any authority. Do you, do you think that's part of it? Like our, obsession with like success or in church world, you know, like growth and strategy, which aren't evil words, but do you think that sometimes our fixation on those things is what keeps us from like truly living this sort of childlike faith? I think so. I think if we really believed that the spirit of God is what grows the church, then I think we would start every meeting in a very different way and we mm. would be asking very different questions and I see so many times, and I've wrestled with it myself, when, you, when you're anxious about um, just keeping your church afloat or just making sure that you get the right number of people or the right amount of money to be, just, I mean, for a good reason, just to be able to keep the church alive. Right, right. Um, then we, we actually kind of break ties with God in order to do this thing for him that we felt he dumped on us, which doesn't feel like good news. And mm. I think this is why Jesus makes the distinction between the world's yoke and his yoke that the right. world says respond 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 question respond problem respond mm. and that is that's an industrial revolution kind of kind of approach <laughs> that is not the approach of the kingdom that's empire what kingdom right. says is and this is what jesus says come to me all you are weary and heavy laden Right. And I will give you rest. But then he says, take my yoke upon you. And so there's this weird way in which he invites us to rest, that ultimately he is bearing the kingdom and he invites us to, to carry the yoke with him. It's one of those, it's like a double yoke where two oxen would carry it together and the older one and the more experienced one would bear the weight of the yoke. And that's why mm. he says, my yoke is, is light. Um, learn from me. And so it's a beautiful thing to imagine. Ultimately, the kingdom is on God's shoulders. The, right. the making of all things new is not our task to do alone. But, but as children, we can say, okay, 
how can I partner with you? And what if he's the kind of father who comes and wakes us up with, with excitement every morning and says, I'm on an adventure and I want you to come with me. Come and right. come and join in the adventure with me as opposed to him sending us out on this onerous task to do on our own that we just feel burdened by him. One of the interpretations I actually heard of that verse when Jesus says, you know, my yoke is easy. One commentator said it means it fits like you've been wearing a yoke that doesn't fit you mm. like that yoke isn't for you. This yoke actually fits. And that's such mm. a good reminder. Like the invitation isn't just rest and lounge. It's rest. Now let's let's get to work. Like There's still work right. to be done. I think sometimes when people think about like childlike faith or wonder, they think, oh, this is just an invitation to daydreaming. Like, no, no, there's still yeah. kingdom opportunity before us. And I, right. I love the way that you frame that in your book. It, it isn't the absence of work, but it's like entering into it with the with the right perspective. And I think that's such yes. a timely word for us right now. I would love yeah. just for the minute or so that we have left, I want to make sure people know not only where where they can get the book, where can they learn more about you? I know that you have writing all over the place. I want to make sure people know how to find you, especially since, as we yeah. mentioned, there's a romance novelist as well. Where, where can people go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, have a website that's called the way is the way.org. Um, you can also get to it through mandysmith.org. And um, it's the place where I have information about the new book, Unfettered, and also information about The Vulnerable Pastor, which is my last book. And um, my blog is up there as well, and different ways to connect with me. So that's a good way to find me online. And just to say it out loud, uh, we are so grateful for you and your writing. We reference your articles and your blogs on our show all the time. Mandy, thank you so much for taking well, the time to join you. us today. It's yeah. our pleasure. The new book, by the way, again, one more time, is Unfettered, Imagining a Childlike Faith Beyond the Baggage of Western Culture. It is available for pre-order right now at thewayistheway.org. Mandy, thank you, as always, for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, new listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. How are you, sir? I am. The, the weekend is upon us, my friend, which uh, <laughs> is kind of changed for us in the pandemic world for as pastors, but it's still good. Mm -hmm. Kid, You know, kids not have school. It's going to be a beautiful weekend. So I am good. I'm looking forward to the weekend. You, you, that is, you're nothing if not consistent in that particular Love sentiment. You, yeah. That song, everybody's working for the weekend. <laughs> has anyone, I can't believe I've never thought of this. Has anyone done like a Christian spoof about pastors? Everyone's working on the weekend. Is that, <laughs> no. does that exist somewhere? Do you think we need to do that? That could be our first ever original track here at the common good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, our producer is a musician. Maybe over the weekend he could, uh, he could compose us. What would, what would that be called? A parody. A parody. A parody. Yes. Oh, man. I miss Weird Al. Let's get him on the show. Oh, my gosh. If we got Weird Al on the show. Just close it up after that. That would be the pinnacle where, right there. Where else, where else could we possibly go? Tim um, Tebow. Remember, that was the first one I told you. <laughs> that was yours. Tim Tebow is way more your white whale than mine. That's but, right. But I just learned that Weird Al is yours. <laughs> I apologize for nothing. Um, <laughs> all right, I got I got two articles here. I want to I want to end with the one from Sojourners, which okay. is entitled "Reading Isaiah as the Nation Waits." Again, just as a reminder, Brian and I are recording this earlier than normal on Friday, so things may have changed by the time this is actually going live. Um, but this other one from Pathios, it's it's an interesting phrase that a lot of people I've seen use in various blogs and tweets. Evangelicalism is not rounding the corner what, what's going on here 
Yeah. And that phrase is coming straight from President Trump as he keeps saying that the covid pandemic is rounding the corner. And right. uh, this, this article begins to read some pundits. American evangelicals have been going through an uncharacteristically rough patch that will soon be over. It's hard to miss the perspective, for instance, in Peter Warner's p- latest piece in The Atlantic, which begins by calling people of faith to, quote, embody moral and intellectual integrity and ends by sounding a more hopeful note uh, than he has in a long time. If evangelicalism has been hit with a virus, it seems we are rounding the corner. Uh, it's a moment Werner has been eyeing ever since he renounced evangelicalism. Institutional renewal and regeneration are possible, he said, and I'm going to push for them. If I'm one day going to return, I hope that I'll bring the compensating gifts of greater insight and critical distance back with me. Uh, and so anyway, rather than read the article anymore, he basically is saying that uh, this article is saying that a lot of us think now that the election's over, hopefully soon over, uh, that we can kind of get back to who we were. We're going to round the corner and turn the page. Uh, but this Pathos article is saying not so fast, that there are some deep-seated issues that maybe the politics of our day have only uh, magnified rather than created, and that we need to. We have a lot more work to do before saying, no, we're good, we're back to our foundations, we're back to who we're supposed to be. Uh, I, I think this article raises a very interesting point in in questioning whether we're about to turn the corner and get back to who we kind of, I think you and I at least say that this is what we hope evangelicalism becomes. Yeah. Do you, I mean, are you, are you hopeful? I feel like that's a question you're often asking guests and I feel like it's a, it's been a, uh, a distant theme of ours for a, a while, like hopeful, but not optimistic, like with regards to this article in particular, where, where do you land on kind of the hope meter? I think he makes a valid point that there's a lot of work to do that just um, what regardless of what you well, not regardless, whether you believe President Trump, uh, him being in there is the best for evangelicalism or him being out with whichever one of those you believe is going to help us heal and round the corner. Uh, this article believes that if uh, removing President Trump is going to help evangelicalism kind of get back. Uh, I think regardless, uh, there's a lot of work to do, I think. That the 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 divide has only been magnified. It hasn't been created. And then when all of a sudden we get a new president or whatever, it all goes away. Right. I think it's only being magnified. So I think we've got a lot of hard questions. I said this earlier in the show. I tend to be an optimistic person. So I do want to say uh, I believe uh, that if um, I believe one of the things this show has helped me get to do is to interact with a lot of people that give me a lot of hope, whether it be authors, pastors. Uh, ministry leaders, whatever else. Uh, so we do a lot of stories that kind of make, kind of sh- uh, shake my hope. But but I've talked to enough people that I go, man, there's enough people who want to heal and want to point evangelicalism in a specific direction that gives me hope that I would say I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful, but I'm certainly realistic that there's a lot of fracturing and work that would need to be done. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that is an important charge too, because and part of what this author is proposing is that he's predicting at least that some evangelical leaders might be more inclined just to kind of bury their heads in the sand. And I think, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm not a proponent of that in general, but now is certainly not a time to, to bury your heads in the sand. And again, I, I, you know, not to keep referencing it, but I think people like Mandy Smith and the books that, that she's writing and the things that she's proposing, like, Hey, let's, let's take an honest look at, at, what's happening and how we're complicit in it. You know, I, I was mentioning to her off air. I see a lot of people reposting the, the Stanley Harwas quote where he said something like, 
Protestantism set out to make um, America Christian, and instead it made Christianity American. And I thought, wow, that is that is a convicting, if not unnerving, thought. If he's in any way correct, and I think there there probably is some truth to that. I, I don't want to end on that note. Though. I know we got a couple minutes left, but there's a, an article out of Sojourners, and uh, I I mean this is where Ken Tanner's um, prayer was the benediction for election season. And this is from Adam Russell Taylor, and the article is called Reading Isaiah as the Nation Waits. Again, waiting is sort of like the, the name of the game right now as everyone's sort of sitting in this limbo, this sort of like holy Saturday space, like what is happening? Where are we going? I know we only got a, a minute or so, but what, what's kind of, the, what's kind of the, the, the big takeaway from this? Yeah, it's it's the fact that, like you just said, we are all just waiting. Like I've got CNN on behind me even right now going, Do they, are there more numbers out there? We're just waiting, right. but we're waiting anxiously, I think, because there's the the what happens in this election really changes directions of where the nation is going. And so there's a nervousness with it. Uh, and he wants to point us uh, to Isaiah chapter 40, he says, uh, in times of duress and uncertainty, uh, he reads, and I'm not used to reading out of the New King James, but that's what he quotes here. He says, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not uh, be faint. And pointing us back to that passage, I think, is a great way to end and so helpful. Uh, because as we are just worried and weary and tired, uh, it, it, it's just a great reminder to us that God is not going anywhere, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this is a really helpful article up here at Sojourners. I'd encourage you to go read it by Adam Russell Taylor. We're really glad that you joined us today. Have a great weekend. Don't know if we'll have this election figured out when we are together again on Monday, but we do hope you get some time to just relax and enjoy the beautiful weather this weekend. It's been our pleasure to have you join us all week. We'll be back on Monday from 4 until 6 p.m. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.